Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. All right, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And um, we will start here. Give a super brief review and then dive into what's new for today. Ephesians chapter 4, and let's start in verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. So this will be a very broad and quick overview Holy living flows out of our knowing, understanding, embracing, loving the truth. To the degree that we're doing that, we will live a holy life. And sinful living flows out of the degree that we are knowing, believing, embracing, even loving lies that have been told to us about the truth, about who we are, who Christ is, the gospel. Now, before we were Christians, uh, we were 100% sinful. Right, Even our good deeds were really sinfully motivated. Everything we did was sinful if you're not in Christ. When we are glorified with Christ in heaven, we will be 100% righteous. There won't be one ounce, no iota of sin. In the in-between time, we're a mixed bag. Or not, and you hear it in this passage. We're new, and yet we're still having to put on the new self. Uh, we put off the old self, and yet we're still being affected by the lust of deceit. And this is the battle that we find ourselves in. Remember, we looked one week at, um, briefly at Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, that talks about Satan deceiving the whole world. And he's been doing it our whole life. He doesn't give up just because we've become a Christian. He doesn't play fair. Oftentimes he starts when we're young. Oftentimes he uses people close to us, whether that be our parents, our siblings, a boss, a coach, even a spouse. Okay. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, who Pastor Reader would say, and I would agree for what it's worth, the greatest expositional preacher of the last century. Listen to this quote um, from his commentary on Ephesians. You will be engaged, obviously speaking to Christians, in a terrible conflict with the devil and all his forces. If you do not realize that and take appropriate action with respect to it, you will undoubtedly and inevitably be defeated. The devil works in us and can work in us through our bodies, through our instincts. The devil can make use of anything. I must never think that my whole problem is confined to that which is within me and in other people. Much teaching concerning holiness and sanctification never mentions the devil and these powers at all. Hence, the total inadequacy of many proposed solutions. Subtlety is the great characteristic of the devil. He uses it most of all by attacking man in the realm of his mind. The devil is constantly trying to insinuate doubts into our minds. It is often very difficult to control our mind and thoughts and imaginations. The devil has power to lead them, speaking of our minds, and especially if you're not aware of it and fail to stop them. And thus, he will take you captive and make you intensely miserable. There is nothing which is more significant about evangelicalism in this present century than the way in which it has largely ignored this teaching concerning the devil and the wiles of the devil. The devil wears a mask. He is an actor who appears in different characters. Okay, now, So just think about what we've looked at over the quarter. At, uh, Satan, in a sense, used Adam's passivity to help lead Eve into sin. 
Satan used Eve's sin to help draw Adam into sin. Satan sought to use the wives, uh, the, the words of Job's wife to encourage Job into sin. Satan tried to use the words of Peter, the words of the random passerby on the highway, the chief priests, the, the elders, all of them, the soldiers, even the thieves, to bring Jesus into sin. So here's a question that we ought to be thinking about. Who is it in your life, in the past, in the present, that God... Listen, the person may be a Christian, right? Peter was a believer when Satan tried to twist him and use him. But who is it in your life that Satan at times has tried to manipulate and use their words to tell you lies about who God is, about who you are, okay? And listen, this may be something that happened to you a long time ago, 40-plus years ago when you were a child, okay? A doubt, a temptation, an accusation, or it may be something that happened last week. Or more likely especially based off what we looked at in the life of Christ last week, there has probably been some lie, some accusation that in different ways and different times you have heard repeated over your whole life through different circumstances. Okay, So one of the clearest evidences, and this is where we're going to get a little bit more specific this week, Okay, one of the clearest evidences that we still subtly believe the lies is this, the accusations of Satan, is when we refuse to forgive the people in life that have hurt us. And specifically the people that God, I mean, excuse me, Satan used to influence us in bad ways. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. And we're going to look at this. Um, To the degree that we're believing that lie, buying into it, feeling the reality of it, we, we give it more power in our lives. Okay. And I'll try to explain what we mean as we go along. So the first point would be this, Satan's chance, or you could say Satan's opportunity. And let's just pick up where we left off, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now skip down to verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as in God, in Christ, also has forgiven you. Okay, now listen. Verse 26 is not a command to be, sin, uh, to be righteously angry. It's more of a concession. It's more of Paul acknowledging, yes, I know there is a category of righteous anger that's technically possible that we visit every once in a while. But Paul is very wise, and I hope that we are too, to realize that that's pretty rare in our lives. Is it not? Okay? And so, I mean, again, look down uh, in in verse 31 when he makes this list. There he just says, let all anger be done away with. So the assumption is that the vast majority of the time, nine times out of ten, our anger is sinful. But Paul is saying, listen, if you're angry, and hypothetically, if it happens to be righteous anger, that's great, but be real careful even then. Because if you hang on to even righteous anger too long, it festers and it tends to turn into sinful anger. If you have righteous anger, you better steward it the right way. If you have sinful anger, you better repent of it very quickly. Okay? I mean, I like to say, even righteous anger is like a hot potato. You better get rid of it quick or it'll burn you. It'll change. Somebody else, I think it was Tim Keller, said anger can be like a gateway sin. 
a gateway drug. It seems pretty small, right? It seems pretty domesticated, not that big of a deal. Everybody gets angry every once in a while. But if you hang on to it, if you nurse it, it will grow and it will lead to all other kinds of sin. Right? I mean, Jesus said, you nurse it long enough, it will lead to murder. So, um, look at what verse 27 says. Do not give the devil an opportunity. There's something about me hanging on to my anger, even if it starts as righteous anger. It's like it opens the door, even for a Christian, and gives Satan an opportunity to find a landing ground in my life and to wreak havoc. Let me just read a few quotes, okay? F.F. Bruce. Let reconciliation be effected before nightfall. If that's not possible, very practical. Yeah, I'll come back to that in a second. Then at least the heart should be unburdened of its animosity by the committal of the matter to God. Nursing one's wrath to keep it warm is not recommended as a wise policy. It magnifies the grievance. It makes reconciliation more difficult. And the prime promoter and exploiter of such discord is the devil. Now listen, this is not a verse to be interpreted in a wooden, literal way. And here's what I mean. I was just talking about somebody that had visited uh, Alaska, right? The closer you get to the North Pole, depending on the seasons, the days can get shorter or then get longer. So it's not like, well... I'm up close to the North Pole. The days only last an hour. I got mad at my wife. I got 60 minutes to get it straight. Oh, you know what? It's summer. A day lasts six months. So, baby, I'm not speaking to you for six months, and I'm still obeying Paul. It's obviously not what it means. Okay? The point is this. Deal with your anger as quick as you can. And sometimes you might need to sleep on it and pray on it or go talk to somebody get some advice, right? But the point is don't put it off. It's, it, it can be deadly. Deal with it as quick as you can. John MacArthur. Dealing with demons in one's lot, Christian's life is being committed to the spiritual means of grace that purifies the soul so that there is no unclean place that demons could occupy or by which they might gain an advantage. Again, sinful anger is like opening the door and inviting Satan into your life. William Barclay, the longer we postpone mending a quarrel, the less likely we are ever to mend it. Haven't you noticed that in your life? You get convicted, shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have did that, I overreacted. Let me go talk about it right now. The longer you put it off, it's like, ah, it'd be weird to bring it up now. You get hardened. John Calvin, not to cherish wrath too long or in our minds or to allow it sufficient time to become strong. Paul's intention was to guard us against allowing Satan to take possession of our minds. Guys, listen to that language. John Calvin's saying, hang on to sinful anger, and it's like you let Satan take possession of your mind to do whatever he pleases. Instead of resisting the devil, we yield up to him the possession of our heart before the poison of hatred has found its way into our heart. Anger must be thoroughly dislodged. Two more, very quick, okay? This is uh, John Stott. Satan loves to lurk around angry people, hoping to be able to exploit the situation to his own advantage by provoking them into hatred and violence or breach of fellowship. This is Warren Wearsby. When Satan finds a believer with a spark of anger in his heart, he fans those sparks, adds fuel to the fire, and does a great deal of damage to God's people. Guys, don't grieve the Holy Spirit with sinful anger. It's one of the things that grieves the Holy Spirit. And Matthew Poole says it makes him withdraw his comfortable presence away from us. So what's the answer? Forgive. Forgive. Somebody that hurt you terribly in your past, forgive them. Somebody that hurts you in a small way tomorrow, forgive them. That's the command. Okay? So that you don't give Satan a chance. Now, second point, stand firm. Stand firm. Flip over to chapter 6. 
Ephesians is the book where, where Paul talks more about Satan than any other of his letters. Okay? Ephesians chapter 6, and let's skip down to verse 10. Very famous, familiar passage. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now, uh, this whole idea of forgiving people, I know it's easier said than done. It's often complicated, messy, not natural. And we'll talk a little bit more specifically about practically what it looks like in a minute. Okay? But the bottom line is we're commanded when we're sinned against, when we're hurt, to forgive. That's, that's the bottom line, broad stroke overview. Okay? Sinful anger invites in Satan and it pushes the Holy Spirit away. Whereas forgiveness invites the Holy Spirit closer. It pleases him, it honors him. And it's a stiff arm to Satan. Get away from me. Okay? Now, I think we've said this in here more than once. Satan's number one scheme in life, his number one desire and goal, is to drive a wedge between people and their God. Right? We've seen that from day one. But he knows he can't always do it. He'll still try his best. His number two goal is this, to drive a wedge between Christians and other Christians. Think about Adam and Eve, the first sin. Not only did it cut off their relationship with God, it screwed their relationship up. They didn't trust each other one another. They wanted to hide and protect, right? Think about Job and all of Satan's attacks on him. It didn't just ruin his intimacy with God in heaven. It messed up his intimacy with his wife. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ and his humanity. It wasn't just that he felt abandoned by his Father in heaven. He felt abandoned by most of his best friends. If Satan can't be as effective in separating you from your Father in heaven. His secondary goal is separate you from other Christians. And let's just be honest. If you've ever been in a season where for for whatever reason you feel isolated from all good, healthy Christian fellowship, doesn't that start to affect your personal walk with the Lord? Right? We're not meant to be Lone Ranger Christians. He didn't call us to just a personal relationship with himself, but a familial relationship with himself and with his people. Okay? Now, verse 12 is so important, guys, for a lot of reasons. But, but in the context of what we're talking about, here's how it's so important. The people in your life that have hurt you the most, that Satan has used the most effectively to whisper these lies into your minds, they're not your real enemy. You've got to learn to see them as a pawn of the devil. Let me just give it in a marriage context for a second, Okay? Uh, my wife and I, we do a lot of kind of pre-marriage counseling, marriage counseling and stuff. And one of the things that I'll say to people in using some of this stuff is to say, listen, do you remember the game you used to play on the playground, Red Rover? Everybody play that, okay? right? Uh, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Susie right over. And then the goal is me and whoever I'm with are supposed to lock arms as tight as we can and Susie's going to try to run through and break the link and we can't let her. That's a good picture of what a Christian marriage ought to be like. That when you start to get into a fight with your spouse is that if you can have the wherewithal to realize she's not my real enemy, although she feels like my real enemy right now, she's not my real enemy, Satan is my real enemy. And if the two of us can turn the emotional temperature down in the room and say, we have a disagreement, and yes, we need to work hard to get on the same page, 
But we need to do it as friends that realize there, there is probably some sort of demonic power at some level trying to drive a wedge between the two of us. And so let's team up and let's figure this thing out and not let Satan drive a wedge. Does that make sense? Listen, I'm not saying that every single time you have a spat about where to eat dinner with your wife on date night that it's Satan's fault. But, but I do hope that you see, after all that we've been looking at this whole quarter, and after what we've read, even just from Martin Lloyd-Jones this morning, if you're like, ah, that's ridiculous. Satan's forces aren't after me in my marriage. Seriously? I mean, if you look at our whole culture, it looks like marriage might be the one main thing he's after more than anything. And, and part of why he's been so effective is how defective so many Christian marriages have been. Right? It's hard to go out there and preach truth to the culture about how important and sacred marriage is when the church's record ain't that stellar. It just loses some of the moral authority. The truth stays the truth, but the persuasive power gets lessened. Total side note, okay? <clears throat> doing college ministry, doing a lot of this pre-marriage counseling, one of the things that me and my wife get to hear often are really these horror stories of people that have grown up with terrible parents that have been all different kinds of abusive. And you hear those stories and you start to understand some of the lies that these students have started to believe internally because of messages that came to them through their parents, the most influential people in their life. Let me just pause and say this because I think this will be important and helpful. I mean, let's just say, okay, I'm 45. For the sake of this argument, we all get to be 45 together, okay? So we're all 45 in this example. And let's just say for our first 45 years on planet Earth, we lived in the Garden of Eden, paradise. We were right with one another. We were right with God. Everything was right with the world, okay? 45 years old, okay? But then sin came in. The planet got ruined. Things got bad. And we started to hear these whispers in our minds of lies of Satan, We've got 45 years of Christian maturity, spiritual maturity, to kind of realize what's going on, catch that, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I'm not saying it still wouldn't be a battle. It would. But we'd be prepared for the battle. You understand what I'm saying? But what about when you're just a five-year-old little boy and you're not even a believer? And the people in your life that are supposed to be your heroes, you know it instinctually because God's written it on your DNA of your soul, my mom and my dad are terrible people and do terrible things. You see how subtle and wicked Satan is? That he can, he, can, he can put these lies so deep in the basement of our soul that just because you prayed to receive Christ, they don't instantly get dislodged. It's a lifelong battle. And part of the way that we practically dislodge it is to forgive the people that hurt us. And part of what I have seen help the most, okay, Imagine, you probably don't have to imagine hard, because this, this is a pretty typical. Some guy's like, you know what? My dad was so emotionally and verbally shut down. I mean, it's like he literally never talked to me. I mean, talk about task. Do this, don't do that. No intimacy, no warmth, no friendship, no conversation about anything of any substance, significance. What do you think that does to somebody that when they learn... About their father in heaven. It's like, mm, I don't know if I like that idea of father in heaven. Sounds cold. Sounds distant. Sounds like a tyrant. But when you're able to help that student, say, realize, you know what, yeah, your dad did a bad job. 
That's sin. And don't want to let him off the hook. But do you know your dad's story? What was your dad's life like growing up? Yeah, I do know a little bit. What was it? Well, he grew up and his dad was a terrible drunk. Beat the snot out of him his whole life. It's like, well, listen. That doesn't make your dad sin any less. He's still culpable. (laughs) But maybe it makes you a little bit more compassionate towards your dad to be able to forgive him because of what he came through. Does that make sense? Listen, Satan has been doing this thing for thousands of years. He didn't just start with this generation. And our goal is to forgive no matter what. I know that's easier said than done. We're going to get to that in just a second, okay? Here's John MacArthur. Those who refuse to forgive continually pick at an open wound, never allowing it to heal. They become tortured prisoners of the offenses and the offender. Listen, I don't know who first said this. I think Pastor Reeves is the first person I heard say it. I'm not sure it's original him, but it's great. It's true. Bitterness is like the poison pill that I take and I wait for the other person to die. They may not know I'm angry at them, right? They may be happy as a lark. And I'm over here stewing. I'm the tortured prisoner. Listen, we ought to forgive people because it's it's for the honor of Christ. That ought to be the main motivation. But let's just be honest. There's a lot of times that doesn't motivate us near as much as it should, right? Right. We ought to forgive people because it will be the right thing, the best thing, the most loving thing to do for them. It would help them. But let's be real honest. There's a lot of times that doesn't motivate us very much, does it? We ought to forgive also because it's the best thing for us to get free from the pain, from the bitterness. Now, to the degree we hold on to the bitterness, we nurse the anger. It's like we're letting Satan's lies and accusations stay warm. Stay powerful, stay effective, stay fruitful in an evil way in our lives. So the third point, the shield of faith, okay? The shield of faith. Um, and let me, let me start by doing this before I even say anything about the shield of faith. Okay? Let, let me give a very brief overview of the process of forgiveness, okay? Very brief overview. The first thing is this. And this is important. And, it, and listen, a, a lot of uh, strong Christians, biblically educated people can miss this sometimes. It's got to start with a heart of forgiveness. And here's the way I like to say it. It's got to start with a willingness to offer forgiveness, a desire for a give, to forgive, a leaning into forgiveness, kind of a yearning to forgive. The clearest example of this in the whole Bible would be the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. I mean, at that moment, when he said that prayer, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. There's no evidence that anybody was repenting at that moment and ready to be reconciled with him, Right? He just had a heart that said, I love forgiveness. I like to forgive people. I want to forgive people. Side note, how do you know if you have a heart like Jesus? Can you honestly in your heart of hearts and your secret prayer life say, for my worst enemy, I'm praying the best thing for him. I'm not praying, get him, God. Now listen, hold another thing. There's a whole biblical category of biblical ways to pray, get him. Right? Go read the Psalms. It's all over the place. Get my enemies. I'm not saying it's always bad and sinful to pray that. But I'm saying the better prayer is, God, have mercy on them. Have mercy. Give them the best. Listen to Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying you're, you're standing by yourself having a little prayer time, and you remember, oh, yeah, I'm mad at her. Jesus just said, just forgive her. You don't have to talk to her. Just in your heart, in a sense, 
offer forgiveness, pray for her, want the best. Okay, that's step one. Then the second step oftentimes is there does have to be a confrontation, does there not? Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go rebuke him, show him his sin. Luke chapter 17, everybody flip over to this one, let's look at this one together. Luke chapter 17. And while we're flipping to Luke 17, let me just say this. There there is, and probably many of us are familiar with this, there is a biblical category of just overlooking a sin, right? Proverbs 19.11, it's the glory of man to overlook an offense. Sometimes there ought to be people that sin against us and hers, and we just say, I overlook it. But but here's an important side note, corollary to that verse. Only overlook what you can legitimately overlook. You understand what I mean by that? Don't try to be more spiritual than you are. Yes, this person ruined my life. They've been sinning against me for 25 years. I'm just going to overlook it. No, you're probably not. You're probably lying to yourself. You just don't want to go have a hard conversation. Here's a good litmus test. If you're still thinking about it in a negative way the next morning, you probably didn't overlook it. Right? Don't let the sun go down in your anger. If you wake up the next morning and you're like, I can't believe he said that to me, but it's not a big deal, whatever. Okay, you probably overlooked it. If you wake up the next morning and you're still seething and kind of grinding your teeth, I can't believe he said, you didn't overlook it. You need to go have a conversation. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17. Let's just start in verse 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now see, there's something a little bit different in this passage and the Mark 11 passage. Is there not? They don't contradict, okay? The liberal scholars would be wrong. But it's just that true reconciliation is a two-step process. It starts in my heart of hearts saying, I want to forgive, I'm trying to forgive, I'm leaning into forgiveness, I'm yearning to forgive. But then when I go confront them and they genuinely repent, then I can say, I grant you forgiveness. I came in here offering it, and your repentance says, I grant you forgiveness, it takes two to tango, now we have been reconciled. And if they refuse to repent, then you can say, I'm staying in a position where I'm offering forgiveness, I want to forgive. But I can't fully grant forgiveness until you fully repent. Does that make sense? Okay. Romans 12, 18. As far as it goes with you, be at peace with all men. The Bible is so realistic and practical, guys. You're not going to be able to reconcile everybody in this world because some people will never repent. Another little corollary, and we'll move on. Just an important side note. Even when somebody genuinely repents and there's genuine reconciliation, sometimes there's still a place for consequences, is there not? I mean, maybe the clearest biblical example is David with Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite, and God says through Nathan the prophet, the Lord has taken your sin away, and yet because of your sin, and then there's a long list of there's going to be some painful consequences. And in the same way, let's just say you had an abusive father or an abusive husband. It might be he's repented, there's been reconciliation, but he might have to go to jail for a while. Or he might have to at least stay in a different house until he proves that he's trustworthy and safe. Now, as you think through that again, there's a lot there. And when we're talking about somebody cut me off in traffic on 280, I need to forgive them, okay, that's pretty easy, right? Maybe not, okay? (laughs) But when you're talking about these lifelong sin patterns that Satan has used to whisper lies into your mind, it's a lot easier, a lot harder 
to forgive. Look at the disciples' response in Luke chapter 17 to Jesus saying, listen, if the person repents, even if they did the same thing seven times in a row, you forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Like, what? That sounds crazy. That sounds impossible. You're talking about someone that sinned against me? Seven times in the exact same way? And you're like, what scenario is that? Marriage? Parenting? The closest, most intimate relationships? People at work? They keep doing the same thing. But then they seem to repent. You've got to forgive them. And they say, we don't have enough faith. So, back to Ephesians 6. Because it has the answer. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and drop all the way down to verse 16. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Okay? I mean, listen, what are the flaming arrows? Is Satan's doubts. Is Satan's lies. Is all the influence that Satan tries to put into our mind to influence us towards sin. And the way that we stiff-arm him and push him back is faith. Faith. And let me talk real application here for a second, okay? Here's a way to think about faith. Faith in the larger story. Faith in the bigger story. You could even say faith in the truer story. Oftentimes, when I'm maybe speaking at a retreat or something like that, or maybe a Sunday school class or something, every once in a while, but it, it happens more frequently than you might expect, I'll have somebody come up after and say, hey, I need to ask you a question. Okay. They say, I just feel so dry and distant from God. I don't feel any intimacy, any warmth, any closeness in my walk with God. And it's been this way for months, maybe longer. I say, well, are, are you regularly practicing the means of grace, right? Reading your Bible, praying, meditating, going to church. All, yes, 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 yes. I mean, not every single day, but six days out of seven, I mean, yes. Okay. Is there any kind of unconfessed sin? And I don't mean you're sinlessly perfect, but I mean, is there any kind of hidden sin that you're not talking to anybody about that you're kind of, no, I mean, I'm trying, I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to do everything I know to hate sin, fight sin, repent of sin. And I say, okay, is there anybody in your life that you maybe are holding a grudge against? Or maybe you have some anger, frustration, bitterness. And it's amazing how often they kind of hang their head and they're like, yeah, there is somebody. Now, there's at least two things about that that are amazing to me. The first is just how common it is. The second is this. When I ask them the question, do you have any kind of ongoing sin in your life that you're not dealing with? They're like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm fighting all my sin. And then I'm like, what are you holding a grudge against somebody? They're like, yeah, I am. They don't think of it as a sin. They think of this as just normal way that you do Christian life. Think about what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer. I mean, it, it, it really is pretty scandalous in all ways. The Matthew version, English Standard Version, says it this way. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I mean, if that's the only scrap of Scripture that we had, right? You're locked in a North Korean prison camp and you only got one verse of the whole Bible. That kind of sounds like works-based salvation, doesn't it? i got to forgive first, and then I get forgiveness. Now, we know that's not what it means because of the context of the whole Scripture. And even that prayer starts out with our Father. This is a prayer for Christians. What is Jesus saying? Here's my best understanding after much study. For a real Christian, right? Now, listen, if you're somebody that never practiced forgiveness ever in your life, well, then you're not a Christian. That's the obvious implication. But if you're a real Christian that's really struggling to forgive somebody, 
to the degree that I am unwilling to practice forgiveness at the horizontal level, I will cease to experience forgiveness at the vertical level. Do you understand what I mean? I still have that forgiveness. I'm still a child of God. I'm still going to heaven when I die. But I won't have the enjoyment of that forgiveness. Does that make sense? I had times when my kids were little, okay? Praise the Lord, it doesn't go this bad anymore. But, you know, two of my sons might get in a fight. And I'd come and break them up. And I'd be like, y'all need to repent, forgive each other. And maybe one of them was having a spirit-filled moment. That happened every once in a while, not very often. And said, okay, I'm sorry, brother. I forgive you. And the other was like, I'm not forgiving you. And so what I do, the one that repented and forgave, I said, hey, buddy, you go downstairs. Me and you are going to have a bowl of ice cream together, right? The one that's still seething angry is like, you go to your room. Pray about it, think about it until you can be forgiven. Now, I didn't disown that child, right? He's still my child. But in that moment, he doesn't get to experience all the benefits of being my child, right? Because of his sin, because of his anger, because of his bitterness. So, John MacArthur, I couldn't find this quote, but I know I've heard it before. He says, forgiveness is the most divine, God-like thing we can do. Just think about that for a second. I think it's true. But then I thought about this corollary. If that's true, then you know what the most demonic thing we can do is? Hold a grudge. Refuse to be angry. It's not worth it, guys. Because that bitterness, when we nurse our anger, we're acting like Satan. Everybody flip over to Hebrews for a second. Hebrews chapter 12, very quickly. Another pretty famous text. I'll make sure we see the context, though. Hebrews chapter 12. A letter written to at least professing believers. And look at what the author says here. 1214. Hebrews 1214. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pretty big deal. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. You see? Think about a root for a second. It's often underground. You don't see it. But it's alive. It's growing. It's deadly. It's poisonous. It's going to produce something if you don't kill it. If you don't cut it off at the roots. Listen, why is this often so hard for genuine believers? It's because for many of us, experientially, the gospel story is on this little tiny black and white TV that our grandparents had with the sound turned off. And the pain and the hurt of what I've been experiencing in this live living relationship feels like one of those 4D IMAX Epcot experiences. It's overwhelming. And if somebody says, don't you believe Jesus? Like, of course I believe it. It's on my black and white TV over there. But what I'm living in every day are these experiences that are screaming something else at me. And so functionally, the way I act is a lot more like the world and a lot less like Christ in certain areas of our lives. Let me give you a story. Okay? I mean, this is a made-up story. Okay? Very cool. But imagine there was a man, okay? and he's madly in love with this woman, and they're engaged, and they're going to get married, and he's got his whole plan, he's got a good career. And then really close to the wedding, she ends up cheating on him with his best friend, dumping him, breaking his heart, and he just spirals into depression, loses his job, loses his best friend, loses his fiance, ruins his whole life. Has to go start seeing a counselor. But in seeing the counselor, 
She's this wonderful woman. They fall in love. They get married. It ends up being a better relationship than he could have ever imagined. And he decides, I want to be a counselor too. And he finds a whole new career path and his life turns out wonderful. Happy ever after. And one day later, he happens to bump into that former fiancé that broke, in, you know, broke his life. It might be easier for him to say, you know what, hey, I forgive you. What you did to me was terrible. It really hurt. It was bad. I mean, you ruined my life in one sense. But in another sense, everything's worked out great. The larger story, the bigger picture, I can step back and see that. And it's so big, it's so powerful. It's the IMAX experience that your little sin now becomes like the black and white TV. Does that make sense? Now, some of you are like, that's kind of stupid story, Olin. I mean, it sounds like too saccharine sweet, a bad Hallmark movie or something. Maybe so. Yeah. Let me give you a realistic one. It's a guy named Joe. He's in a mixed family. A bunch of older brothers. And they all hate him. One day, they ambush him. Beat the snot out of him. Within an inch of his life, almost kill him. Throw him into a pit. Mock him, ignore him. And then decide, no, we're not going to kill you. We're going to sell you into slavery for life. And we're going to go home and tell daddy you're dead. Nobody's ever coming to look for you. Things keep getting worse. Tries to be the best slave he can be. Gets falsely accused of rape, thrown into a dungeon. Promises are made, tries to be the best prisoner he can be. Promises are made, forgotten, he's left down there to rot. But then he does get promoted to be prime minister of the only superpower of the day. Gets some prophetic wisdom that a famine's coming. And he's able to make plans to save not only the whole nation, but essentially the known world at that time. And even his own wicked evil brothers. And when they came to get food... He tested them, didn't he? He made sure they were really repentant. And when they were, he revealed himself. And he forgave them. And there was real reconciliation. Now listen, and he didn't sweep their sin under the road. He was like, ah, oh, not a big deal, whatever. What you guys did was just kind of funny. No, no. Genesis 50, 20. Let's, let's flip there and we'll all end there. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Genesis chapter 50, look at verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. He's very honest, he's very straightforward. You sinned, you intended evil, you did wicked things to me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. He says, listen, God planned the whole thing. God meant it for good to save me, to save you, to preserve tons of people. Listen, that's a glorious story. The whole story had kind of come full circle for Joseph. He could see the end, how good it was. And so that said, as evil as you guys hurt me and my family, I forgive you. Because he was living in light of the larger story, the bigger story, the truer story, the better story. Now here's the thing. Some of you may say, that's great for Joseph and I see it. And it's even great for your stupid little Hallmark movie example. But I'm still in the middle of this life. I'm still in the middle of pain. I had not seen the full circle yet. I don't see how it's going to work out. I don't see the good that's coming from it. You ever had a conversation with somebody like that? They're like, I know all that sovereignty of God business, but how could God turn this to good? It's too wicked. It's too evil. It's too painful. It's too ongoing, too long-term. But here's what we've got to remember, guys. 
if we are in Christ, the end of the story has already been written. In fact, the end of all things has already been written. I mean, one theologian said what the cross really was is the end of history came to the middle of history. So we could know the end of the story. The truer, greater, better Joseph came to earth. See, Joseph didn't have a choice, am I going to suffer or not? Right? He had a choice on how he responded to it. He didn't have a choice. Jesus had a choice, will I suffer, yes or no? And he said, yes, I will suffer for those people. I'll be arrested. I'll be mocked. I'll be tortured. I'll be beat up. I will be killed. And Jesus went to the cross knowing full well it wasn't just going to be the human pain and violence, all of Satan's attacks. It was going to be his father's wrath for all of his people, like me and you, coming against him. And he stared into the face of the wrath of God and he said, I hate this, but because I love my people so much and I want to forgive them, I'll do it. Guys, that's the truer, larger story. And to the degree we meditate on that, we pray about that, we read, we study, we worship in light of that, and that becomes more of the IMAX experience of our lives. All the pains, all the hurt, they become like a little black and white TV. And I'm not saying it gets easy, but it gets easier to say, I forgive you. And to the degree I'll say, I forgive you. Whatever lie Satan was trying to put in our minds through that pain, through that hurt, it dissipates. It goes away. The fangs are taken away. Lord Jesus, hear our prayers. Thank you for your great mercy. Thank you for working all things together for the good of those who love you. Please let us have more of a personal, high-definition, 4D experience of your love, of your mercy, of your grace, of your forgiveness, that we might live the same way, offer that to others, and where Satan is trying to nurse our anger and tell us lies. May we give him no place and opportunity. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.